Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. We're on every weekday during this 43rd Ontario election campaign. Today on the pod, the Liberals pitch a billion dollars to clear the surgical backlog due to COVID. There's more reaction to Education Minister Stephen Lecce's so-called slave auction stunt. And a former New Democrat MPP sues the party for denying him the right to seek re-election. It's Wednesday, May 11th, day eight of the campaign. So let's get to it. Now, we know right now in Ontario that when you look at the stats, uh, the numbers are of grave concern. That, of course, the voice of Stephen Del Duca, the leader of the Ontario Liberals, who was in Etobicoke this morning. Most people think he's a guy from Vaughan, where, of course, he's lived for the last uh, few decades, but he actually grew up in Etobicoke, so he was sort of coming home this morning to announce a $1 billion expenditure, should the Liberals take power, over two years, to clear the surgical and diagnostic procedure backlog. Um, JMM, you and I have talked about this a lot before on the podcast. This is something that um, came into place as a result of so many procedures being canceled due to COVID-19, and the Liberals think they've got a way to end that backlog. Yeah, they are talking about spending, uh, as you say, a billion dollars over two years. Uh, The financial accountability officer uh, for the legislature has estimated that the uh, backlog uh, is something like $1.3 billion. Um, You know, these are surgical and diagnostic procedures that have gone, uh, you know, uh, undelivered uh, because of the repeated hospital shutdowns uh, due to the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, this would, uh, you know, take a, a big bite out of that backlog. We do know that Christine Elliott, health minister, fessed up at one point many months ago that people have died waiting for surgeries and procedures and so on that they didn't get because of the delays because of COVID. Now, math is not necessarily my strongest suit, but if the FAO, the Financial Accountability Officer, is saying it'll cost a billion three to clear the backlog and the Liberals are pledging a billion to clear the backlog... What doesn't compute here? Uh, well, you've already put your finger on one uh, part of this, which is that uh, there is money yet to be spent. Uh, the the Tories in government did spend uh, some uh, additional sums to try and uh, help clear that backlog, uh, though uh, so far, you know, between the the sums that the Liberals are proposing to spend and what has already been spent, uh, we might not be there. The other uh, catch uh, is that the FAO's estimate for uh, $1.3 billion was only up to September of 2021. And there has, of course, been a whole new wave of COVID and a hospital shutdown since then. So uh, I think it's at least fair to raise the question of whether even a billion dollars could actually cover the entire tab of clearing that backlog. Right. Let's move on to the progressive conservative campaign, and it has had to deal with uh, quite an explosion over the last couple of days uh, with the revelation that Stephen Lecce, the education minister, while he attended Western University in London, Ontario in 2006, participated in something called a slave auction at the frat house of which he was a member. Now, Lecce is 
and has been Ontario's youngest ever education minister. I well remember when we had him on the agenda for the first time, and I pointed out to him that uh, Bill Davis was the previous youngest education minister at age 33, and Lecce was very proud to tell me I was 32. So he was younger than Davis, youngest of all time. What that also means, though, is that he has quite a digital footprint. And why don't you give us some of the background as to how we found out all about this? Uh, the uh, website Press Progress uh, reported uh, on the uh, evening of uh, Tuesday evening that uh, Lecce had participated in this uh, mock slave auction uh, during his time uh, as a fraternity uh, leader at Western University. This was around uh, 2006. So not exactly ancient history, though, I, you know, I suppose maybe our younger listeners think 2006 is ancient history. Uh, Lecce apologized uh, you know, reasonably promptly after this was revealed uh, in a statement on Tuesday night saying, uh, the event from 2006 was inappropriate and in no way reflects who I am as a person, which is why I unreservedly apologize. I, I should say, I mean, promptly depends on <laughs> your definitions here, of course. This is a, you know, a 16-year-old incident. <laughs> No, indeed. And uh, I don't know about you, but the first place my mind went after hearing this news about Stephen Lecce was, of course, the blackface controversy that Prime Minister Trudeau had to deal with two elections ago. And um, where do I want to go with this? Well, one of the things I remember about that was Andrew Scheer, the Conservative Party leader, holding a sort of impromptu press conference, I think at an airport, in which he really came on very hard and very heavy about calling the prime minister a racist. And the, I think the feedback, I think the consensus to the extent there was one, the consensus emerging out of that press conference was that sheer overreached. And one of the reasons that Trudeau wasn't immediately felled and his political career not immediately over as a result of blackface is that people kind of knew in his heart that he wasn't a racist. And so he certainly was punished um, but it wasn't the end of his political career. And all of that went through my head this morning when I saw the reaction of Stephen Del Duca, the liberal leader, when he was asked about it. And his answer was, you know, it's not really for me to react. I'm a white man who's grown up with a certain amount of privilege. And I think that the people who have truly felt insulted by this are the people who ought to react. And media asked him numerous times over and over, are you sure that's all you want to say about this? Do you, know, do you think he ought to resign? Do you think he ought to be de declined as a candidate? What do you think should happen? And he, he stood his ground and he just said, you know what, it's not for me to react, it's for others to react. I don't think an individual like me, uh, given my position, given my privilege, uh, should be commenting on something like this. I think it's, I think it's the people who are, who are directly impacted by unacceptable and deeply, deeply troubling behavior who should be a part of the conversation. I understand he's apologized, but I, I think it's best, I think it is best left to, uh, you know, to, to racialized Ontarians, vulnerable Ontarians who are, um, who are in, in, in a position of having to deal with this kind of behavior far too often for them to be in a position to respond to whether or not his apology is good enough. And I found that a very interesting reaction. You know, whether you find it good, bad or indifferent, I found it very different from Andrew Scheer's reaction when he was in the same spot a few years back. 
Anyway, what have you got to say on this? Well, you know, just to build on that, uh, the New Democrats were uh, first out of the gate uh, yesterday evening with uh, a release uh, demanding that uh, Leche resign. Uh, the statement was issued in the name of uh, Jill Andrew, of course, a, a uh, former MPP in the last legislature and a candidate in this election uh, and a, a black woman. So, you know, exactly the kind of person that uh, Del Duca said, you know, uh, ought to be uh, speaking and and you know, really demanding uh, in no uncertain terms that that Lecce uh, not proceed uh, as a candidate. Uh, no signs, of course, at the moment that uh, Lecce is going to resign uh, as the Tory candidate. All right, moving on to the city of Brampton, which we know is a very big deal in this election campaign because they have five seats there. Uh, in the last parliament, the PCs held three, the New Democrats two, the Liberals none. And the New Democrats have really, for the past many years, I'd say probably four, five, six years, they have made it a point to do increasingly large numbers of events in Brampton uh, because they think that territory is ripe for the pickings for them. And they made a big breakthrough in the last election with two seats there. Uh, we're here to talk about something that's extremely important for, uh, for people here in Ontario. Our auto insurance system in this province is broken. That, of course, is the leader, Andrea Horvath, making an announcement to lower auto insurance rates by 40%. She did the announcement in Brampton in part because of the electoral math and in part because Brampton suffers what can be called postal code discrimination. JMM, you'll go into more of that in a second. Um, she puts an 18-month freeze on insurance rates if she becomes premier, and she'd create an auto insurance fair pricing commission to deal with the issue of auto insurance. Okay, pick up the story if you would. Sure. Uh, let's talk first about uh, this uh, uh, concept of postal code discrimination. I should say it is a, a contested uh, concept. Uh, the insurance industry, of course, says that they aren't discriminating uh, irrationally against uh, people who live in certain postal codes. Uh, they simply say that more of their costs come from uh, Peel Region, but Brampton in particular, uh, and the, the costs of insurance reflect the costs of uh, the, the services that they are billed for. Uh, nevertheless, this has been an issue now for multiple legislatures with uh, Brampton area MPPs uh, saying that the province needs to take action to uh, halt this discrimination uh, by the industry. Uh, and, you know, uh, to, to zoom out a little bit more, of course, auto insurance has been a perennial issue for uh, governments of all political stripes. Uh, you and I, well, you would remember better than I. <laughs> I was a bit younger. Uh, but uh, uh, Bob Ray, of course, was elected in 1990 on a promise to bring bring in uh, public auto insurance. Uh, his government did not end up doing that. Uh, but, you know, some of what Horvath alluded to in today's announcement, you know, the possibility of following other provinces who do have uh, public auto insurance systems uh, today uh, is, is one uh, possibility that uh, the NDP are putting on the table. Yeah, I well remember that uh, first anniversary of Bob Ray's election, which took place in 1991. And I think it was in 1991, one year to the day of his election, uh, that Mr. Ray had to go before the cameras and fess up that the notion of making auto insurance in the province public and firing thousands of private sector, mostly women at that point, who were in the auto insurance world, 
uh, doing all of the clerical jobs affiliated with that uh, was not going to be uh, really solid for his reelection prospects uh, to do in the middle of a, the worst recession since the Great Depression. So auto insurance, John Michael, is just one of those issues that, uh, you know, every single government has had a hard time with. It seems impossible to find the sweet spot on one end of the continuum. There's public auto insurance, which British Columbia and Manitoba have opted for, where the government basically does the job. And, you know, when times are good, you can really enjoy cheap rates and cheap premiums. But when there's a lot of action, your taxes are going to go up to pay for all of that. Uh, that and then on the other hand, uh, you know, systems that are more akin to Ontario or other provinces where uh, the state is out of it, the state regulates it, but um, but nobody seems really happy with the size of the premiums that they pay and the amount of coverage that they get and the deductible that always maddeningly seems to be too high when you actually do need the insurance company to come forward. I don't know if there's ever a way to solve this issue, but at least the NDP has weighed in with its option today. Well, you know, one aspect of all this, and I won't spend very long on this, but, you know, there is a... Um a similarity with what we talk about with uh, pharmacare and uh, dental care and the same language that uh, progressive parties use where they say like, you know, Canada has public health care unless you need to see a dentist, unless you need your eyes checked, unless you need a prescription filled. We also have public health care unless you get into a car accident. Um, And, you know, OHIP covers some services, but not all of them. And the human health side of car insurance is, is what is driving these rapidly escalating costs. And and you know it, it doesn't cost that much to get the actual physical damage of the car fixed, or, or to just replace a car altogether. Uh, it, it is the human health side of things, and you know there might be room somewhere to talk about uh, you know bringing the the healthcare side of car insurance into something like OHIP, but that's a, a much larger discussion. Indeed, too much for this little old podcast. I can <laughs> tell you that, at least for today. Mike Schreiner, the leader of the Green Party, was up in North Bay yesterday to participate in the Northern Leaders debate, and he was in Sudbury today to make an announcement of a different kind. It is clear that it is now or never to address the climate emergency. Yeah, uh, he was uh, largely reannouncing the uh, Green Party's uh, pledge to to make it more affordable for people to do home retrofits. Uh, they could receive up to twenty thousand dollars to you know make their homes more energy efficient, better insulation, that kind of thing. Um, more notably, the Greens are uh, announcing or have announced rather that uh, they will be presenting their fully costed uh, platform tomorrow morning in Toronto. That would make the NDP the last party to present a, a fully costed platform, depending on how you uh, qualify the Tories on this score, uh, whether you count the uh, Ontario budget uh, for the year 2022 as a costed platform for the PC party. Uh, That might be a controversial stance. (laughs) Well, as long as we're out on that tangent, yeah, let me weigh in on that, because I remember last uh, election, uh, the NDP introduced their platform, and it seemed to get uh, initially a pretty good review. And then after some journalists did a deeper dive into it. Uh, Some of the numbers didn't add up, and the leader, Andrea Horvath, had to confess that some of the numbers didn't add up, and that proved to be a problem for them. Uh, It is unusual for the New Democrats to be the last party out of the gate to have a fully costed program available for the public to see, but it may well be that what happened four years ago is a cautionary tale for them this time, and so they want to make sure that they take the time to dot every I, cross every T, etc., etc., etc. I don't know. That's my theory. 
No, I, th- I think there's definitely something there. Uh, as you say, the NDP got uh, beaten about the head pretty uh, badly in the last election because of some issues about whether the the numbers in their platform actually uh, you know matched what they were claiming. It makes total sense that they would like to avoid that uh, this time around if they can. Right. Now, we're not forgetting about Doug Ford, but, um, well, let's just tell it like it is. He didn't make any announcements today. Uh, In fact, I don't think reporters have had an opportunity to question uh, the leader of the PC party since this past weekend when he was up in Timmins. Uh, He did the Northern Leaders debate yesterday, and he didn't do the press scrums afterwards, which all the leaders traditionally do, and the other three leaders did. He just, uh, after the debate was over, immediately went out a side door on the debate stage and disappeared into a moving van, and that was it. He is, however, making appearances around Ontario, according to his Twitter feed, and he was in his hometown of Etobicoke earlier on Wednesday today. He also stopped by the set of a TV show for a photo op, and the PC party was also happy to announce that, um, well, Doug Ford got an endorsement from a major labor union, which is not always a thing for a progressive conservative party leader. So they were very happy to trumpet that news. What's the significance of that? Right. This is uh, an endorsement from the uh, International Brotherhood of Boilermakers. Uh, this is, uh, you know, a major construction union. And, you know, I don't think we need to spell it out in detail why uh, construction unions are uh, giving the, the PCs some consideration in this election. Uh, the the budget in uh, this year proposes to spend really large sums on transit and highway construction, among other things, uh, hospital construction. Uh, you know, those projects lead to construction jobs. So construction unions unions are uh, pretty happy with that as a document. Um, this is the uh, second major construction union to endorse the Tories, uh, the first being Liuna. But that ha- is a bit more of a, an interesting story or a bit more complicated story. Uh, Liuna and Stephen Del Duca have a, a pretty um, acrimonious history. Uh, very briefly, uh, the, the last liberal budget in 2018 had a measure that uh, hurt Liuna and benefited the carpenters union that Stephen Del Duca used to work for before uh, becoming an MPP. Uh, Leona, livid in 2018, worked hard to defeat liberals uh, across the GTA in that election. They are still angry about it. When Stephen Del Duca won the liberal leadership, they uh, vowed to uh, uh, defeat him and his party, uh, basically from the moment the ballots were done being counted. So, um, Two construction unions endorsing the Tories. Uh, some different reasons there. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we had Joe Mancinelli, who's the head of Leuna um, Laborers International Union of North America, who's uh, a Hamiltonian. And um, uh, boy, when I asked him why he wasn't endorsing Stephen Del Duca in this election campaign, he said, because he can't be trusted. I don't trust him. And he went into some of the history that you just referred to. So yeah, there's a lot of bad blood there. And it's interesting, as you note the distinctions between the private sector unions like Leuna uh, and like the, um, what was it, the Boilermakers that you mentioned just a moment ago? They have endorsed the progressive conservatives, but holy smokes, the public sector unions, OPSU, CUPE, these kinds of unions are still very much with the NDP and against um, the progressive conservative government. And I guess you can put the teacher unions in that bucket as well. Uh, No love for the Tories among that group, that's for sure. 
No, I mean, some of this, of course, is uh, totally unsurprising. I'm not sure there's been an election in my lifetime where the public sector unions uh, enthusiastically backed the Tories, though, uh, you know, some of it, of course, is uh, relevant specifically to uh, the record of this government. Uh, you know, Bill 124, the, the wage uh, curtailment, wage constraint bill, whatever you want to call it, uh, that, that limits public sector salary increases is, is probably, you know, item number one for public sector unions. Yeah. Now, JMM, as you know, every now and then I got to do one of these full disclosure things because I happen to be a member of a very engaged family (laughs) in public life. And so uh, full disclosure, this next story we're going to talk about is about a relative of mine, Paul Miller, who's a former New Democrat MPP in the riding of Hamilton East Stony Creek. He is my second cousin once removed by marriage. So I put that on the record as we begin to talk about him. And we are talking about him because he has launched a lawsuit against his former party, the NDP, for $1.3 million because they declined to allow him to stand again as a candidate for that party. Uh, He is therefore running in that Hamilton East Stony Creek riding as an independent. And, um, well, maybe at this point I should hand this case over to you (laughs) and have you tell everybody what this case is all about. Uh, Right. So uh, Miller and... uh the NDP leader, Andrew Horvath, uh, have had a pretty tense relationship uh, for many years now. Uh, long before I knew you, long before I worked at TVO, I knew that Paul Miller and Andrew Horvath did not really love each other. Um, the the NDP have alleged that Miller joined uh, anti-Muslim uh, Facebook group uh, and uh, uh, that you know he participated in um, offensive and inappropriate uh, discussions on that, that Facebook group. Uh, Miller has said he is totally digitally illiterate, uh, not only would not do that, but could not do that, um, and that the party is just looking for an excuse to ditch him uh, because of the relationship with the leader. Um, uh, not to be you know, unkind about it, but you know, I, I think People who know Miller would say that that's a pretty credible excuse, um, <laughs> and uh, you know. But it's an interesting argument here because there's like there's some the the state of Canadian law on what political parties owe candidates uh, and nominations is is I would say uncertain. Uh, there have been lawsuits in the past where people uh, you know alleged that a party did not give them uh, a terribly fair hearing, and uh, you know was inappropriately, uh, uh, you know, preventing people from from running. Uh, the courts have not always found that uh, candidates are, are owed a really, like, strict, you know, burden of fairness. So, uh, it, you know, if this lawsuit goes forward and, and, you know, there's a long way between now and then, uh, it'll be interesting to see what the court says. This is a really uh, ironic and uh, troubling story for uh, backers of both Miller and the NDP, Um, Paul Miller comes out of the Steelworkers movement. The Steelworkers were helpful to Andrea Horvath when she became leader of the party 13 years ago. Uh, Their ridings are side by side in the city of Hamilton. I mean, there's just a lot of entrenched history here. And the effect of his ouster from the party now means there is a very competitive four-way race in that riding of Hamilton East Stony Creek. You've got Miller, who is running for the, I get running as an independent now, uh, who was the former sitting member there. But there's also, of course, an NDP candidate who's a young guy in his 20s named Zygum Butt. Uh, there's a liberal who is a current city councillor named Jason Farr. So he has pretty good name recognition there. And you wouldn't think that in a seat that's a, a strong NDP seat, which it has been for many years, that the Tories would have a chance to win it. But I think they do because 
Their candidate is a guy by the name of Neil Lumsden, who is a former star fullback for the Hamilton Tiger Cat football team. Again, great name recognition. So if the traditional progressive vote is going to be split among the NDP, the Liberals, the Greens, and Paul Miller, um, and the Green candidate, we should say, is Cassie Wiley, then it's entirely possible that Neil Lumsden, with uh, who knows what, 27, 28, 30 percent of the vote, could uh, slip up the middle and win this thing. I haven't seen any polling on this, but uh, as a Hamiltonian, I can tell you the whole thing feels very competitive and very close. What's a tie cat? Oh, my goodness <laughs> gracious. <laughs> Friends, just when I think uh, I've brought him so far and um, <laughs> we got to go back to ground zero. Yeah. OK, John Michael, let's do a uh, let's do a hard turn here from that story to a new ad that is out from the Ontario Liberals. And this one is focused on that leak of a draft decision by the United States Supreme Court that is potentially going to roll back uh, Roe versus Wade, the decision on abortion made 50 years ago. Here's a snippet of that ad. The U.S. Supreme Court is rolling back Roe v. Wade. Are you worried this could happen in Ontario? Some conservatives are already promising it will. So, I don't think there's any mystery here why uh, the liberals would uh, make an ad like this. Uh, not clear if this ad is actually uh, running anywhere than their own YouTube channel, but uh, you know, you make an ad like this because you know, on balance, you think that you've got something to to gain when uh, voters are thinking about this issue. Um, it's difficult to um, talk about this without sort of sounding like I'm minimizing the issue, which isn't my intent here, uh, but. It's, it's worth stating here that as far as uh, federal uh, law is concerned, of course, we currently have a, a liberal government in Ottawa backed by the NDP. Doesn't seem like there's any likely prospect of change uh, to federal uh, uh, law regarding abortion. Um, and abortion used to be criminally regulated at the federal level, and it no longer is. Uh, and as for provincial law, you know, Doug Ford has said that he will make uh, absolutely no change in uh, provincial uh, abortion services. Um, there is the the issue of Sam Oosterhof, uh, who you know the ad alluded to, uh, you know, is is uh, anti-abortion conservative who uh, you know won a seat as a, a very young man uh, and continues to sit in the PC caucus. Uh, but of course, Sam Oosterhof is also not a minister. Uh, you know, has spent four years uh, of the last legislature without holding a minister's portfolio. So. I wouldn't say that he's a nobody in the PC caucus by any stretch, uh, but I think it's important to add some context there. Very good. One last item following up on something we told you about last Friday, and that is the Greens have now nominated a full slate of 124 candidates. The Liberals have not, incidentally. You know, the Liberals are still a few seats short, and they just lost their candidate in the Sioux because of a vetting problem there. But anyway, the Greens have got all 124. One Actually, for every Steve, right. I, yeah. breaking news here. Uh, it looks like the Greens might also be down one. Uh, as we are recording this, I'm just seeing a note that uh, they, I believe they've lost their candidate in uh, Davenport, uh, a, a young Muslim candidate uh, over some issues of... Uh, uh, an endorsement from uh, endorsing a statement from Benai Brith, uh, some some internal party matters there. But uh, so the Greens have 123 candidates, if that is correct. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Well, here here's something happening in real time. And the reality is, uh, with social media nowadays, your digital footprint. Uh, how many times have we seen this come back to bite candidates in the you know what? Um, it, you know, you make one stupid tweet 15 years ago and it can ruin your political career. And of course, you are obliged 
as a candidate to tell parties that are vetting you whether there's anything in your past that could come back to embarrass you or your party. And of course, they all say no, figuring that if you've tweeted 50,000 times, how are they going to find that one tweet that's going to get me in trouble? But they almost always do. Anyway, all right, the Greens are at 123 now then. 76% of their candidates, they say, are from equity-deserving groups, and the Greens would like you to know that because they're pretty proud of that. Right. And, you know, for many voters, of course, representation matters. And so the Greens uh, have done uh, what appears to be a very solid job of ensuring that uh, women, LGBTQ people, people of color uh, and others are significantly represented uh, among uh, the the slate of candidates that they are uh, presenting to uh, voters for June 2nd. Okay, let's give the last word on this podcast to somebody named Tammy Quigley. And if our listeners are wondering to themselves, who is Tammy Quigley? Have we heard that name before? Um, Well, no offense, Tammy, but probably not. Uh, But Tammy Quigley took the trouble to send us a note saying, I've always enjoyed the weekly On Poly podcast from John Michael McGrath and Steve Pakin, and I'm now loving The Daily Show during the writ period. Great work. Well, we always say we love people's feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, but shall we fess up? We like the good comments a little better than the indifferent or the bad ones. We cannot be entirely impartial on this matter. (laughs) (laughs) But we are on the campaign trail. And that is the On Poly podcast for day eight. Reminder, we're here every weekday during this 43rd general election campaign, right through to election day on June the 2nd. JMM, we'll see you on the hustings. We'll see you tomorrow, Steve.